You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host... Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I am your host, Stuart Deloney. And my, we've got a show that's going to be, I think it's going to be a little different, but I still think it's going to be something special. So how about you just buckle up your seats, make sure your trade tables are up and ready so we can just launch into the Snarkiverse So first up, let's go ahead and just hop right into what's good, what's bad from this last week. And just a reminder that you can catch everything from what's good, what's bad on our website, snarkyfaith.com. Just go over there. We've got the videos. We've got the links. They are sitting there and they're just waiting for you. They're like, we're lonely. Why haven't you come and found us? We're here. We're waiting. So one thing I have learned over my many years on being here on the earth is simply this. If you're going to insult somebody, especially in a snarky manner, because again, you're listening to Snarky Faith Radio, and I take snark very seriously. So if you're going to insult somebody, do it right. Like with the Super Bowl, I'll just give you a a snippet of of snarky comebacks. I had a friend of mine that had been saying uh, midway through the Super Bowl, There's nothing that can stop our Falcons, rise up, all this other blah, 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 blah. Um, And so, yeah, and so he had commented, who's the joke now at halftime? Because he's a Falcons fan. And if anybody who's anybody that was either watching the show or has any amount of news that you get that you consume regularly on your feed, know that the Falcons really didn't return from halftime. Patriots came back, huge win. And so when you start trying to insult things and insult people, just make sure you have your facts straight. So I had a buddy, so I snarkily kind of threw something back at him uh, who was casually saying, oh, look, who's the joke now? And it was him that was the joke. And so he threw back an insult at me that, well, you live in North Carolina. When you guys actually get a football team then you can talk. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, well, the closest thing that you have is the South Carolina Panthers. Womp, womp. If any of you guys know the NFL, there are no South Carolina Panthers. There's the Carolina Panthers who have a stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. So again, if you're going to take something on, if you're going to insult somebody, at least do it right. And I'm using that as a pivot over here to what's good, what's bad with the Fox News crew in the morning, they were slamming Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, because he tweeted this out last week. He said, before you head to church today, remember to thank God for his son. Jesus was a refugee who fled to Egypt. And so what began to happen with that statement was they started to tear it apart. They were saying that it was inaccurate and foolish, and the reverend needs to go back 
to Sunday school to be able to get his facts straight. Which is funny, because one of the things that they went on to say was, it was simply known that Jesus' parents were just simply going to go and pay their taxes. That's why they were going to Bethlehem. You see, the only problem with that is, yes, there was a census. Yes, Mary and Joseph were required to go to Bethlehem for the census, which, as we know, census oftentimes um, is kind of like secret code. We want to count you so we can tax you. But the problem with that is Sharpton wasn't even talking about that at all. He was referring to the fact when King Herod decided to start killing the babies to get rid of this child Messiah. And then Joseph gets a dream. An angel tells him, hey, you need to flee. You need to get out of here. You need to go to Egypt. And so he wasn't going to Egypt to pay his taxes. He was going to Egypt to flee from being killed. And so in essence, Jesus was a refugee. And there's actually several scriptural notes where Jesus actually refers to himself as a refugee. So if you're going to insult somebody, Fox News goons, just make sure you have your facts straight unless you want to look like an idiot. Which, if that's what you were going for, well done. You get a gold star for being a bunch of morons. And speaking about religion in the news, if you haven't checked this out, again, the links are on our website. I, there is a fascinating interchange that goes on between Stephen Colbert and Ricky Gervais, where they begin to have this dialogue slash debate. I would say more dialogue than debate because I thought it was very, it was very classily done. It was done in a way that I thought was very even-handed, where, again, Ricky Gervais is well-known to be an atheist. Stephen Colbert is a good Catholic boy. And so they kind of have this dialogue, this back-and-forth that goes between each other. But what I love about it is that it is a spirited conversation and it is a respectful conversation. And so for those of us that don't know how to do this, this is a great example of watching two people that respect one another have a dialogue about positions where they are very, very, very like diametrically opposed to one another, but they can still do it. They can still smile and they can still be friends for another day. I thought it was a beautiful interchange. Uh, you don't have to agree with either side of them to at least note that they did dialogue quite well. Next. Not sure if you want to classify this one as good or bad. It all really just depends on where you're sitting and really your taste in movies. But guess what, folks? This is big news. The Sci-Fi Channel has announced that Sharknado 5 has finally begun filming. Yes, Sharknado 5, known as the kind of unemployment check for Ian Ziering and Tara Reid. The fact that they have no careers, but have found this weird little niche in the pop culture universe to keep acting in bad movies. I mean, it's really kind of fascinating. Like, the movies are so bad. Like, they're so bad. My kids love watching them because it's almost phenomenal how bad they are. And I hope Ziering and Reed can kind of understand this, that they suck so bad that they actually make something better by being together in this. Because how can you take anything seriously called Sharknado? Well, you could also say that probably about the president of our United States right now. It's as absurd, it's as 
horrifying, and it is just as awful as Sharknado. Except for in Sharknado, you can kind of sit back and enjoy the escapism as it kind of rolls over you as you have a tornado full of sharks. Whereas with our new president and the way our government is heading, it's one of those things you actually can't sit back. I mean, I wish it was on the sci-fi channel because then we could go, oh my gosh, the credits will roll at some point. It will be over. And we can say, wow, that was just awful. But sadly, every day I wake up and I'm still living in Trump's America. It's incredibly sad. And we'll get more to that as we move through this show next. So if you're in the mood to read and not simply just watch stupid videos on our website, uh, The Atlantic put out an article last week that is fascinating um, to be able to go through. And I'll just summarize it up in small little bits uh, right here so I don't steal anything from this. But I would say it is well worth sitting down and reading through this. It's all about, well... The title of it is called It's Putin's World, How the Russian President Became the Ideological Hero of Nationalists Everywhere. And it takes you on this journey through the past couple of years and the rise of Putin and the rise of nationalism and how all of these things, much like Sharknado, were a perfect storm. You should check out the website. You should check out the link. It is very good and it is well worth your time. Next. So if you don't like reading about reality in Vladimir Putin, I've got another article for you that, again, I will repeat myself. I think it is well with your time. But this one, it's escapism. It's snarky. And it's satire. Yes, Carl Giberson, whom I'm going to work on trying to get on the show, is a professor of science and religion at Stonehill College. And he wrote for the Huffington Post, he wrote an article called Jesus at Trump Tower. And it is, I would say it's a satire, it's a parable of Jesus having a meeting with Donald Trump. And it's funny, it's sad, it's mainly just sad because there's so much truth in the midst of this. But I think it's one of those things that for us that would say that we walk this path of faith, that, that we walk after this Jewish rabbi, that we follow his teachings, that he matters somehow to us in this insane world that we find ourselves in. It is beautiful to be able to watch one of these modern-day parables unfold in the face of the horrors that we're living in. And I just lay that out like it's not funny at all. It's actually really, it's, it's satirical, it's funny, it's worth your time. Go out and read it, because reading is fundamental. Next. But you know what's also not satirical? even though it sounds like it. Yeah, the fact that Trump has vowed to destroy the law that bans churches from endorsing political candidates. It's finally come down to that. Yep, good old McDonald has pledged to repeal a 50-year-old tax law that prohibits churches and other tax-exempt organizations from participating in political campaigns. And this is why we have the separation of church and state. To go and to smash that divide, smash that line, leads us into some scary, scary, dangerous places. Now, I know a bunch of pastors out there who would love that because simply they're using the pulpit as a political platform week after week. And the scary part about that is 
churches, in many ways, should have very little to do with politics. Now, I think politics should inform what our faith calls us to do, especially when we see atrocities, especially when we see bans, especially when we have refugees that are in crisis and folks that are hurting. Yeah, I think our faith can move us to want to do positive change, positive impact in our community, but I do not believe that our churches need to become more and more political. It is a dangerous move that he is playing with amongst all of the other dangerous moves that he is playing with. And this is one of those that kind of slides under the cracks that I think we need to know about, that we need to know that that whole separation of church and state is a good thing. We want our government to be about the government. We want our churches to be about our churches and never the two shall meet. We do not want that to happen. I've been in situations too often. I've actually literally been in churches that passed out voter pamphlet guides and they would preach and they would bring in candidates that they believed were whatever quote unquote God's chosen people were. And see, the problem with this that I have is that you're not educating your congregations, churches out there, you're not educating them to have a lens of faith to how they look at the world around us. All you're doing is telling them how to think. You're telling them how to walk through the steps, how to pantomime this, how to lip sync a faith. And I know you do it because, mainly because it's an easy control structure for people. Don't teach them to think, but tell them what to do. I mean, it's kind of like one of those big parenting mistakes that I've seen people make with their kids over and over. They don't teach their kids to think. They just tell their kids what to do. And guess what? At some point, the authority structure breaks down and the kids have no idea how to make decisions rationally for themselves. Churches, you are doing the same thing to your congregants. Teach them to walk out the ways of Jesus. Teach them to walk out the loving and merciful and gentle ways of Jesus and then let them apply it to their world. Do not steal the, do not steal the act of learning from people because otherwise we're just having congregations of parrots and not prophets. We're having congregations of people that do not know how to think for themselves when it comes to matters of faith. And then we have situations where you have people saying, oh, he's God's chosen one. Whatever he does, he farts mercy and grace because he has God's favor. And then we get in this crazy, cranked up situation that we find ourselves in where the religious right puts an insane fanatic in the presidency. And they say that they're doing this for God. But when you begin to look at the actions of what is happening from this administration, they are far from anything that Jesus would ascribe or endorse or actually call his followers to do. Frankly, Jesus calls his followers to do quite the opposite of everything that we are seeing done by this Trump administration. The long story short, the fact that there is a divide between church and state is a good one. It's a check and a balance. It's something that 
keeps those two parties even so thinly apart. And to break that will cause a ton of religious ugliness, even more so than we're seeing right now in this country. Mark my word, to get rid of that is a huge flaw, a huge mistake. And by no means does it have anything to do with the name of Jesus. And lastly, for what's good, what's bad, we all sat through the Super Bowl, saw the commercials. For the most part, for probably the last three years running, I could say, for the most part, I was quite disappointed with the content that they were pushing out. I I get tired of that forced sentimentality that tends to happen during the Super Bowl. Um, And I'm more of a fan of the outrageous stupidness that we used to have, like the the over-the-top, if you keep going over-the-top, because at least I felt like I'm being amused or having the opportunity to be amused. But when it comes to these commercials, I don't want to be preached at during the Super Bowl, with one exception, and I'll get to that in a second. But my main beef is with Netflix. You threw out... A Stranger Days Season 2 commercial in the middle of the Super Bowl. Everyone in our family was excited. We were all jazzed up until the end of the commercial, which is what ruined it when it said we have to wait all the way to Halloween. And speaking about videos, I'll get back to the commercials in a second. Anyone catch up Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer on SNL? It was everything. It was absolutely everything that I needed to be able to laugh my way through this week. Because I feel like this is three episodes in Aurora when what's good, what's bad is filled with escapism because it's my only outlet for sanity. It's my only outlet to make it through the insane news cycle that we find ourselves caught within. But lastly, circling back to the Super Bowl. And and again, we'll make sure links for this are on the website. Uh, They had had a commercial during the Super Bowl Surprise, surprise. No, there was a commercial by a building supplies company called 84 Lumber. And first of all, it's to be noted that there was a bunch of controversy surrounding their ad because the Super Bowl would not let them show the entire ad. They said it was too controversial. So what they did was they put in part of it and then called you to go to their website to go and watch it, which all of us did at the same time because we were kind of confused and curious about what it was all about. And it's an ad like featuring a Mexican mother and her daughter embarking on this difficult journey north, which we're assuming, kind of how they left us, that we're there trying to get to the wall to get into the country to have a better life. It's five minutes long. It's powerful. And I would just say it's definitely worth a watch. So moving on in the show from that, from one thing that was worthy of a watch to another thing that was worthy of a watch, uh, what I wanted to bring today, which is why I said earlier, this, this episode's going to be a little bit different than usual. I went to Fuller Theological Seminary for my master's degree. And Fuller, one of the reasons I chose them was that they were a interdenominational seminary, meaning that they are a seminary that doesn't have one kind of group think fueling what they educate. They're from a broad spectrum, a broad spiritual spectrum um, of traditions that comes together. And I will tell you this. One, I don't know that my master's degree has necessarily paid off for me 
But secondly, because I had a conversation with a friend of mine that was uh, that I went to school with the other day, but I wouldn't have changed it for the world. It was one of those things where going through that program messed up my faith in a good way. And it messed me up in a way that probably, well, I'll go ahead and say this, that that means I could never work for a church again. Simply because of, and I'll circle back to what we mentioned earlier, it taught us to think critically with our faith. To think critically in how we view culture and the world around us with our faith. And part of Fuller is they have all of these other initiatives on the side. They have all of these like faith and film, faith and art and culture initiatives that are formative. They are brilliant. And I got an email out since I'm an alumni last week about a session that they had held with Martin Scorsese, who directed the film Silence. And as soon as I got this interview back, I I was like, this is great. This is really interesting. This is an interesting conversation about someone's journey of faith and how they wrestle it through, how they deal with doubt and why doubt is good. And as I was watching this, I was like, oh man, this is really, really good. So I decided to write them and I said, hey, I've got a radio show. I'm an alumni. Can I use this on our show? And the odd thing they told me was, absolutely. We would love to bring this to a broader audience. And I will let that be the last part of our show, the interview with Martin Scorsese. And before I get to that, I wanted to debrief you on the movie that he'll be talking about. I wanted to debrief you on the movie Silence. So I went and saw this movie a few days ago, and I will tell you that it's still haunting me. Now, it is not an easy movie to watch, and I will go as far to say that this is not a movie for everybody. I mean, when you think about Oscar contenders, which this movie, by and large, was shut out, it doesn't have the feel-goods, it doesn't have those feels that La La Land would have. It doesn't have that kind of a religious war bombacity that you'd have something like Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. And see, the problem with this movie is also its greatest strength. And this is why I think a lot of folks were surprised that it did not get more Oscar nods than it did. Because it's well done. It's got Andrew Garfield. It's got Kylo Ren in it. Um, It's got, I mean, it is in Liam Neeson. I mean, hey, this is like taken for the Catholic clergy, I guess. Except for Liam Neeson, he's the one that has, has been taken. It's kind of the way it works. Okay, I digress. No, but what I'm saying is this is a movie that doesn't give you clear answers about faith, which is, which is one of the main issues that I have with Christian films, is that the message is everything, and the acting and script and cinematography, all of those things, nah, it doesn't matter, as long as we have a good message. And, and typically those types of Christian films are the ones that give the audience what they already know. It, they do not require you to wrestle through anything. They do not bring up any poignant parts of faith. I mean, they're just candy-coated religious tracks for people to consume and nod their heads about and feel good that they're doing their godly duty by sitting down and watching whatever Christian crap movie that they're watching. But silence is very different than that. If anyone knows Martin Scorsese, it's one, master filmmaker, and two, if anybody knows the book, Silence, this is a difficult one to adapt. 
So let me just read you the summary of the movie before I kind of give you my knee-jerk, deep-gut reactions to this film. And so I'll read you the summary here. All right, so I'm taking this from Matt Zoller Seiss. And uh, this is part of his review, which I thought actually summarized the movie quite well. Um, his words for this was, silence is a monumental work and a punishing one. It puts you through the hell with no promise of enlightenment, only a set of questions, propositions, sensations, and experiences. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say that that is 100% true. So the synopsis of the film goes like this. You have two priests. They leave for Portugal, for Japan, to find a third priest who's gone missing while working as a missionary. The third priest, which is the Liam Neeson character, is believed to have committed apostasy, which apostasy in this context is renouncing God, or renouncing Jesus. And so he's seen to have committed apostasy by stepping on an image of Jesus while being tormented by the Japanese. So this is kind of a work of historical fiction that is going on here from a famous novel. And the movie is just simply that. It's just a quest to be able to find the truth of what happened to this other priest. And while I'm not a Catholic and I don't really comprehend all the nuanced elements that were going on, I still comprehended the entire thrust of what Scorsese was trying to do with this. And like there was there was a few lines in the movie that just really, really hit me. And so this was this was one I, I felt like this movie was was a meditation. Like as I'm sitting there watching this and letting it just wash over me, it was it was gut wrenching at times. It was hard to watch at times. And there was these two quotes that I wrote down like while I'm watching it because I'm, I'm the nerd that has a notepad when I watch movies. Um, probably not like a Fast and the Furious. I don't need a notepad for that one. But for movies that I expect, A, to talk about here on the radio with you, and B, just ones that, that I think are going to move me in a way that I want to remember, I do. I'll, I'll take in a notepad and I'll, I'll, I'll jot these down. And so... Really what this is, is you have these priests coming to this, this island of Japan in, an, in, in a time where it was very hostile towards missionaries to be there. And as these young missionaries, these young priests, are beginning to see how people are hungry for the gospel, but at the same time the government wants to squash all of it. And, I mean, it's really, really hard to watch just the martyrs and all that goes on torture-wise within this movie. And by no means is this kind of like, I mean, there's, there's movies that have far more torture in this. And I'm not even talking like Saw-level torture. I'm talking like even like Braveheart-level torture. But a lot of this, I guess what wrung my soul out was this idea of silence. And what, what do you do when God is silent to you? And it made me just think of so many different things like in, in the Christian landscape. Like one of the quotes in the movie was, the price for your glory is their suffering. And this was somebody that was taunting one of the priests, this idea that the priests were there to be able to share the gospel because that's what they feel called to do based on the Great Commission in the Bible. And by doing this, it was causing 
great pain amongst the people because the government was oppressing them because they did not want this to spread. And, and something else, another line that stuck out to me was that, you know, this is of no use and has no value to us in Japan. And I, I think that is something that should lay true for all of us that walk in faith, regardless of what faith tradition you're a part of, is that especially when you think of like just the historical context of colonization and how especially the Catholic Church kind of moved alongside the colonization of, well, of England, of France, of Italy, you know, all these, and that somehow they saw these imperial conquests or conquistadors, um, but they also saw them as people that were bringing their religion along with going in to change their culture and subjugate their people in a certain sense. And, and it brought up a lot of issues that I've had a lot in my life, mainly that being this, this idea of apostasy, this idea of renouncing your faith. Like I, I've always just thought about this. Like when you'll see posts on social media when folks are like, look at these Christians that are standing and being killed for their faith through ISIS. Like, in my own heart, which is funny because, um, well, I mean, A, I've been through seminary. B, I've actually been ordained as a pastor. And and I think of contexts like this where I'm just like, well, if ISIS is wanting to kill me because, and all I need to do is renounce what I believe in, what 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 do crazy people care? Like, for me to tell crazy people something to make them stop being crazy... I mean, I don't necessarily know if people can touch where my faith lies in my heart. Now, I may be wrong with that, but I was just thinking these instances where, because they have like several people, they show instances of folks that were that are willing to try to get to not go through the torture just to renounce their faith, even though they go back to living their life of faith and this idea of of what your words mean and this idea of renouncing something. And, and it's, very, it's a very strong film that just really deals with these elements of faith and doubt and what does it look like when God is silent because we've all had those times when God doesn't answer or God seems distant or God doesn't seem to be a part of what's going on. And I loved how Scorsese, like, he wove in elements that in a certain sense that at all at times for those of us that are trying to follow after God, there are moments where we are like Jesus, and there's other moments, probably more mo- moments, <laughs> um, when we are like Judas. And I just felt like watching through this movie, it was it was something that that really took a great endurance of the soul, and and it just made me just think on just a couple deep levels, and these are just really just off the cuff, and that. When our faith, and, and see, this, this can be easily mis, mis, misconstrued, but our faith needs to be able to make sense to all people. Like when we are sending people to go out and be missionaries or whatever around the world, are we bringing them American Christianity or are we bringing them Jesus? And, and, and I think that it's easy to paint this picture in broad strokes when you begin to look at this from the realm of like missions work, but even in our own communities, are we still bringing like a white Jesus to a Hispanic community or a white Jesus to an African-American community? 
Yeah, I don't know. And and I just, I, I kind of just, this movie's still kind of ruminating in my soul, and it's something that I, I, I will return to again. And I think that Scorsese does it in just a very eloquent and even-handed way. So it's not simply that Japanese bad, uh, white Catholics good, but it doesn't really give you those solid answers that most Christian films do, and because of it, I loved it. I loved the torture that it did to my soul, and I love how my faith was pulled and pushed within me. And for that reason, I would absolutely recommend this. But enough of me and all of this. You know, I think it's better to be heard within the conversation that Martin Scorsese lays out. And so what I want to give to you is what I mentioned earlier is this interview, and it's presented by Fuller's Studio. And just for you to know, that there are more resources for a deeply formed spiritual life that can be found at fuller.edu backslash studio. And so this is the interview that Fuller published, produced, and gave us license to be able to use here on the radio. Enjoy. Here's what Martin Scorsese said in a famous quote, my whole life has been movies and religion. That's all, nothing else. The movie we're about to see this morning is a testimony to that fact. If there is any movie that invites theological dialogue, surely it's silence. I tell people that you should not go see this film alone. (laughs) Um, You need to go with a friend, you need to go with your group, and you need time to process it together, um, probably like months. There's this French film theorist, Michel Chion, and he says that the last remaining religious space in the modern world is the closing credits of a movie. Because there's no other place any longer where we get together with people, with a community, have a common experience, and then are forced in darkness to reflect upon that shared experience. So I'd like to thank you for coming, for joining us in this apparently last religious space in the entire world. But also, I'm excited for the conversation that we're about to have. Will you join me in welcoming the co-writer and director of the film we just watched, Silence, Martin Scorsese. You have said, and maybe it's apocryphal, that the whole of your life has been movies and religion. Um, well, that was the second half of a statement. Oh, what's the first half? I forget that now. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I said it's a little unbalanced, but yeah, it's, it's true in a way, in the well, foundation, that's true. The reason I bring it up is because you could probably use that statement as the life statement for a number of people sitting here. Mm. We represent basically friends, faculty, students, alumni of the Fuller Seminary community. Is there any difference between screening a film for a a larger audience, a regular audience, and 
being back and maybe hearkening back to your days as a 19-year-old in seminary, thinking about going into the priesthood, what's it like to screen a film and talk to a group of seminarians? It's somehow very different, I think, because I, how should I put it? I'd hoped that that this would um, reach you in that sense. And I'd hope that it's something that you would be open to, but also, how should I say, um, not uh, something that is um, a narrow in a way, wider for the whole world uh, through you. You see, this was the idea. I, I thought to put it out there and to see the people who really have faith, people who really understand this situation, understand the situation of the world the way it is now, that it'd be really interesting to have something that would open up uh, uh, serious, uh, enlightening discussions around the world. That's what I thought. It's certainly different from showing uh, uh, the film to um, a lay audience, so to speak, you know, which, by the way, we've been getting very strong reactions to, really strong, you know, um, in, in L.A. and New York is quite quite interesting. Yeah, I was at the landmark. I think when when you screened it there, uh-huh. um, and just overwhelmed by the reception. Um, and I think there you mentioned you'd screened it for the Pope in the Vatican. <laughs> well, yes, uh, I, he didn't attend. Oh. Yes, <laughs> we said we're screening at five. Holy you, you met him. You met him later. <laughs> so I met him early in the morning, actually, and um, uh, he was very gracious. And uh, uh, he, he, uh, I gave him. Um, a copy of the painting of the Madonna of the Snows. Yeah, and also also the the, the Japanese scroll painting of, um, obviously a copy, of uh, the martyrdom of the, of the uh, Jesuits, 1622, which the original hangs in the Jesu, uh, uh, you know. And um, uh, it was really very sweet. He blessed my family and us, and uh, I then opened the doors, and there were about 200 cardinals sitting there, and he was about to uh, have a meeting. <laughs> he said, pray for me, I can use it. <laughs> but he did hope, he, he said, I would love to see the film, but he, he'd hoped that, you know, the film, he, as he put it, it bears much fruit in a way, you know. But uh, he was, I asked him if he'd ever been in Nagasaki. No, only Tokyo. But I know, I believe he wanted to be a missionary in Nagasaki, right? And Yeah. Um, and so everything was quite was quite remarkable. And that evening, the film was shown at the Palazzo San Carlo, which is a, actually smaller than this room, big screen, pretty big screen, and above it was a, uh, a life-size crucifix, and uh, stunning, you know, about maybe seventy-five people. I I do not exaggerate when I say multiple people, when they found out you'd join us, um, have said you as a filmmaker have been one of the most, if not the most, theologically formative voices in their life. Mm. Um, and when you think of a film, you know, saying all the different hurdles that you encountered, it does just strike me that there is a, such a time as this. I feel that way about the Pope, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he as the Pope is at such a time as this, mm. both Protestants, Catholics, Christians worldwide need that kind of Pope. And we exactly. need this kind of film. Yeah. What would you say... If you were going to boil it down into one or two things, what is that core spiritual conversation you're asking us to have walking out of this theater? Um, well, I guess it's the conversation I had myself and the book um, since 1989. What does ultimately approaching um, Christianity from many different angles in my whole life 
uh, in, a, in an adolescent childhood, adolescence, and all sorts of things through the 60s, by the way, where there were lots of disruptions. Uh, <laughs> uh, things started to change in the 70s, where we started making these wild films in, in Los Angeles here. Uh, approaching it from so many ways, how does one, if you're not able to, or you're not um, really uh, a clergy, let's say, or you're not given your life uh, to that calling, to that vocation, how does one then really express and live true Christian life, especially in a world, the world I come from? I grew up in a very tough area, um, and I saw the worst, yes, there was lots of violence, but the worst thing was the um, thinking, the medieval kind of um, tribal way of thinking that was mitigated by a number of religious people who were in my life, particularly one priest who was a young priest who came to the St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. I wanted to be like him, so I thought I'd be going to the diocesan priesthood. But when I was 15, I was in this uh, preparatory seminary, and I immediately failed out because I realized, I realized the vocation is something not because you want to be like this person. That person could be inspiring to you, but... Uh, it has to be a true vocation. There were other things in your mind. You had, I was obsessed with cinema. And, uh, a lot of this came from my asthma, which isolated me from a lot of people. Um, and so then if you take up that life and you, you deal with the stories that I dealt with uh, and parts of you, a lot of you is, is there. Father Principe, this priest who was my kind of tutor in a way for a long mentor, I should say, he talked about the difference in certain kinds of Mediterranean Christianity or Catholicism. And he felt the beauty of the Mediterranean one is that if you fail and you uh, you fall, corrobo, if you do, he said, the thing is that you're not damned for life. The idea is to you get up again and you try your best, and if you fail again, you fail again, <laughs> and you try your best. And, that was, and he, he knew the book, by the way, uh, and I haven't seen him uh, in a while now, but, and that was very interesting to me. There are those, he said, who feel that if they fail, um, they're doomed. There's no sense in trying to, uh, to do anything. In any event, I, I, the whole idea is how to live a Christian, how to live uh, Christianity in daily life. How does one do it? And... Uh, over the years, it took many, many years to make this picture and to come to terms with it. And a lot of it had to do with my own life changing. Like getting married again and uh, having a child that uh, uh, I'm 74 now, so she's just turned 17. It's, it's a different uh, experience when you have a child late in life. And so things start to, the values start to change. And uh, uh, maybe it's just the working out from person to person. It's being there. It's almost like that movie I made, Bringing Out the Dead, with uh, Nick Cage, uh, um, in which ultimately the EMS guys, the men and women in the EMS, you know, blast their way through the city at night, all night, taking care of people who are dying, taking care of people who are suffering. And ultimately, um, I remember uh, Nick, uh, the character, it starts with him on the verge of a nervous breakdown saying, it's been three days and I haven't brought anybody back to life. Well, he's not God, but he, he, he see somehow God has turned from him and ultimately he realizes he's got to be just a witness. He says, he calls it a grief mop. We go there and we just mop up the grief. That's what we do. We can't stop at all. 
Um, but in any event, um, those are the thoughts that, uh, that I thought would be the idea of how um, hmm, we don't make religion something that's foreign, that's separate from life. That's the key. Yeah, it's really interesting to, um, to hear you talk about your vocation out of the priesthood, and yet you told stories that are all saturated spiritually and ended up shaping the very seminarians and priests and pastors that, <laughs> you know, that you were sort of feeling that wasn't your vocation. I, I find that fascinating. And part of it's what you're getting at here of, of how do we, uh, that's sort of the in the trenches reality that, that maybe the incarnation mm-hmm. is calling us to. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me, Mako, I, um, that that's defines in some ways, both of you as, if you're making movies in Hollywood, but you're asking spiritual questions, or you're a visual artist in the arts, you know, the sort of postmodern art scene, and yet you're explicit about a faith commitment, you're trafficking in these various marginalizations. So I wonder if you could say a bit, how did this movie, because of the novel being so influential in your life, how did it shed sort of new light into your work as an artist? Thanks, Carter. Um, what you did in this film is such a courageous uh, gift to many of us who labor to be pure, you know, to, to seek after, not after the market necessary. It's, it's not after some kind of success model of the world, but it's purely this calling. You know you have to do it, but there are many battles that you went through. And I was just struck with your heart toward this journey. The thing that kept me going trying to crack the story in terms of the last 20 minutes of the picture, really. Uh, I didn't know how to visualize it. I didn't know even what it really, what did it really mean? And I don't know. I'm not saying I didn't understand it. I understood it, but I couldn't verbalize it. I couldn't put it on the page. I couldn't put it on screen. Now, for those of you who do not know, this last 20 minutes is after the Fumier Mm -hmm. stepping. Mm -hmm. And it's the part that often people don't even read. (laughs) I know, the epilogue. (laughs) So you spend 20 minutes on that. Therefore, it's important for you. it really is. And also the Fumier scene, the the idea of what what that means. And uh, uh, I know Gary Wills talked about uh, a a man who, who gives up his faith in order to gain his faith. What exactly is that? And um, that's a ter- that's a a big that's a big choice. That's a big choice and a pretty scary journey, you know. Yet he finds the true Christianity, and so for me, this is why I couldn't make the picture. Uh, and in a way, I was very nervous and very upset about all the legal issues and promises that I had made to make the movie, and I was being sued. I wasn't making. I didn't have the script, but. Um, I kept holding on to it, knowing that somehow things were going to, uh, and it happened, things were going to fall away. And the important issues would come up forefront in my life, not just in in the work I do. Well, the work I do is my life too, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this powerful suggestion that the most faithful and obedient act is to apostatize. And it's scandalous especially to religious people, especially to Christians, um, because we have this sort of uh, high-minded, pristine notion of both God and Jesus, and yet one of the most powerful scenes, both in the book and your film, is when it's Jesus calling him to Mm, say, step on me, that is why I'm here, right? Obviously, that's a a, a turning point of the film, that's the the focal point, but could you say a little bit about... um, your own just <laughs> struggle to, to film that? How hard is it to, to get there and say, okay, I've, I've gone through all the process. 
Now here it is realized. Um, well, that, what, it's, a, it's a good question because that when I, when I was on the bullet train from uh, Tokyo to Kyoto, and when I read that scene, I said, "I've got to make this film." But how do I do that? How do I do the voice of Jesus? He has ears. I mean, you know, and I know cinema fairly well, and I know all the religious films going from the greats like Dreyer and Bresson and those who all the way up through, you know, um, um, DeMille and the other the other style, which I loved when I was a kid, but I um, I tried to uh, uh, react against because I felt that the idea of Christianity had to be reinvented in, in cinema in a way to make to make um, uh, to make it. Um, uh, accessible to the the young generation, to the to the you know to take away the glorious music, to take away even in the, in the temptation of Christ, to take away the beautiful language from the Bible, you know. So you have guys with uh, Brooklyn accents and Southern accent. You know, well, that's what it was like in ancient Judea, mm-hmm. in Galilee. Uh, you know, if you came from Galilee and you went to Jerusalem, they knew immediately if you're from Galilee, yeah. just from your tongue. And, and your accent. So, you know, uh, but so all of this, but um, I, I, I'm digressing a bit. Um, uh, yes, what does one do with the voice? That was the key, I thought. And ultimately, do I really understand about that apostasy and what it means? Um, as the years went by, as I made well, Gangs of New York and then The Aviator and then, then Departed, the picture Departed, and then at the end of Departed, things got so rough. Uh, the world that I found myself in, and I've said this before, that I felt that we were at a kind of moral ground zero. And I don't know what to think. I just couldn't wait to get over the film. And I went, I went ahead then immediately and uh, shot a concert with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> that's life. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's it. So what I'm saying is that somehow that really helped make me realize it was the end. I go to find the meaning of existence, the meaning of life, and that for me is Christianity, and uh, that's the real saving grace of, 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 our, of our world, of our species, really. And I think, uh, then what is it? What do we have to do to really make Christianity real, to realize it? How do we behave? What do we do? What do we say? Okay, we make mistakes, but then we move back. And so for me, it starts from the foot soldier level. It starts with you individually. And if it could be to your wife, to your friends, to your kids, good. If you can work that out, you know. But I did find that it was... I also found reading a lot in the past 20 years, particularly from different... Uh, well, not French, but mainly English and American books and uh, history. I found the... Uh, coming across some wonderful stuff, but um, authors um, apologizing for Christian attitude. You know, another one saying, this seems disturbingly Christian. <laughs> disturbingly? All right, now, is, is that getting into the politics of it? Or does it mean that compassion and love for, for each other is wrong? And what else is going to happen? If we don't have that, species is over. Part of why I think most of us are here is our interaction with Inda, with the novel, that it captures something of the sort of spiritual state that we're in. And that is this, I can only describe it as, as post-traumatic 
that we all, both, both religion, faith, Christianity, society, politics, all of it, we're grappling with what do we do post-trauma? And every day we're re-traumatized. And if the incarnation, if Jesus isn't speaking to that trauma, why are we here? I've heard you say a few times that you're, you want to explore and interrogate um, the contradictions and the ambiguities of faith while remaining rooted in your Christian faith. If you were going to speak to us and say, here's one piece of wisdom as a filmmaker, person of faith, and leave us with that, what might that be? Well, that's a, a tall one, but I, um, it, it, it's in the films, I think. There's no doubt. Um, as Raging Bull, for example, ultimately he, uh, he sits in front of a mirror and, and repeats the monologue from On the Waterfront in which somehow he seems to come to some sort of peace with himself. He seems to forgive himself, and maybe that's where we have to begin. Forgive ourselves. We could be, we can be loving to others. You see, we don't have to punish the others around us in many different ways. You don't have to just do it with fists and uh, abusive language. In many different ways, you, you could. And for me, it's it's weathering, weathering all the problems um, of um, uh, over the centuries and all the issues that have come up about. Christianity, um, the Protestant, Catholic, uh, you know, the same in a sense, and all the issues, the uh, political issues, all sorts of weathering all that negative, combative spirit that's now around, oh, many years really, weathering it so that we protect that kernel of faith in ourselves. Maybe that by having it tested constantly, we might find the truth of it, you know. Yet I know the truth is within the behavior of yourself in daily life. I know it has to be there because if we don't, what do you do? I mean, it's, it's a thing of, uh, you know, the missionaries here, they go there and, and uh, there's a, um, there was a, uh, a Philippine Monsignor Cardinal in Rome at the Jesuit screening. And he talked about, uh, somebody mentioned that the Japanese are going to be upset about the way they're portrayed. And he got up and he talked about the Japanese Yes, being very cruel in the film. He said, but one has to understand that um, when the missionaries came there, the Europeans, um, they presented their truth with a quotes on it, um, which negated the truth of the culture that they were preaching to. Um, and he said, uh, everything that they knew and lived for and all their whole life, everything they know is not true. We have the truth. And in, in this case, the Japanese saw it as uh, arrogance, and therefore, they had to take down the arrogance, he said. And it was, in a sense, that arrogance was a violence to the people, just as the uh, cruelty was to, uh, from the Japanese to the missionaries and the others. Uh, he also pointed out that you know, colonialism is tied um, inextricably, unfortunately, still tied to Christianity. And he said that wound still, he used the phrase, that wound still hasn't healed yet. So I thought, well, yeah, okay, then how do you, how do you, Spread the word. How do you how do you make the change? Well, what isn't it in behavior? Isn't it like somebody, you know, hanging around somebody? I'd like to be like so-and-so's cousin. They really were when I was in difficulty, they came, helped me out, or they just sat there, didn't say anything, but they just sat there. I mean, there's something about our behavior. I know it sounds small, but it, it's not easy. It's not easy. If you ever go to uh, deal with people who were sick or you go to a hospital talk, how do you do that? It's very hard. But that's where it begins. And that's where we get to the truth of it, and, and compassion and love. And that other, without that, there won't be any species. Do you all join me in thanking Martin Scorsese once again? Thank you. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio. Well, that's all we've got for this show this week. Thanks again to Fuller. And just a reminder as we end this broadcast that you can always catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for being part of the conversation. I'll catch you again next week. I am out of here. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com. Dot com.